Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, November the 4th, 2023. It is currently 4.18 p.m. Central Time, and I am coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. And I don't know if you remember, it was just a few days ago, I was talking about how cold it was here in the studio and I had to bring up a space heater and it was freezing and it was cold and it's like, what, what is happening? Well, now, just a few days later, same studio, same West Texas, same Abilene, Texas, and now it's like 80 degrees outside. So now it is burning up in the studio. It was such, you know, wait, wait, is it cold? Is it warm? Which one is it? What? It, the, it's contradictory. It's keep, it keeps changing. Which is it? Well, I say all of that because sometimes within Christianity, I struggle and you may feel that sometimes my perspective is a little contradictory or it keeps changing. But let me try to explain. There are times in Christianity where I get very frustrated when someone comes along going, hey, we have a new way of interpreting this verse and no one has seen it for 5, 10, 15, 20, 50, 100, 1,000 years. We finally know how to interpret this verse. Everyone has been wrong. That sometimes bothers me greatly, right? Because I'm like, wait a minute. So everyone got it wrong for a thousand years until you figured it out? Like I kind of got, I've talked about this before. I kind of got very frustrated because I felt that's what was happening with Romans chapter 13 during the pandemic. Year after year after year, I would hear, hey, you're to submit to the government, godly or ungodly, you're to submit other than very extreme situations, very extreme situations where then you are allowed to disobey. And even that, when you look in Acts, were they disobeying against civil authority or were they disobeying against religious authority? Was it the civil authority telling them they couldn't preach or was it religious authority? And that raises a lot of questions. But all of a sudden it felt like everyone was like, no, Romans 13 only applies to to uh, submitting to good government. But if the government is so, if we, if we decide the government is bad, we no longer have to submit. And I'm like, wait, where did this new interpretation come from? So sometimes I get very frustrated when someone comes up and says, wait a minute, we figured it out. Everyone has been wrong. I get a little bothered. But at the same time, and you may feel contradictory, I kind of get tired of that within Christianity, there's almost like, this is the way the verse is interpreted. Don't look for anything else because this is the way it is. And if you go against this, well, now you're in trouble because you're going against, you know, our team. You're going against your tribe because this is the way our denomination, this is the way our church interprets it. And don't look or look anywhere else. And you may think that that's contradictory. On one hand, I, I don't like when someone's like, hey, here's a new way of interpreting it. At the other, on the other side, I don't like when people's like, don't don't ever look for a new interpretation. So I, I sometimes struggle with that balance, but I do think there's a balance. I do think if you come up with a brand new interpretation, you've got to at least expect a little bit of like, well, wait a minute. So you're telling me everyone has gotten this wrong. Now, of course, if they can demonstrate the people in the past did interpret it that way, then it's not a new interpretation. It's a reminder or a rediscovery of an old interpretation. Okay, that's a little bit different. 
on the, at the on the other side, I do believe sometimes people just interpret a verse because that's the way everyone else interprets it. And I think there's a problem. So you have to find kind of that balance. And at times it may feel contradictory and at times it may confuse people. And I think t- at times I confuse people with that because you'll hear me kind of go back and forth sometimes to maybe... I don't think I go to either extreme, but I do find myself struggling with trying to find the correct balance. And I bring all of that up because today I have in front of us an article that informs us that we have all misunderstood Romans 8.28, that your church, my church, that you, me, people you know, we've all misunderstood Romans 8.28 and an article was published Five days ago, that tells us, ladies and gentlemen, this is the correct way to understand it. So let's just remind ourselves of Romans 8.28. I could probably quote it from memory. You probably could quote it from memory. It's one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All things work together for good. Very well-known verse. It is quoted. Now, I do agree. Sometimes it is quoted in ways that can be very harmful. I do believe sometimes maybe we don't take this into complete consideration of maybe, I think there's some questions we need to ask about it. I do think that sometimes people just quote this verse without really understanding or thinking of all the implications. So I do believe that this verse has been used to actually probably create more harm than good in many ways. But I don't know, have we all misunderstood it or have we just simply misused it? There's a big difference between misunderstanding and misusing. But then you could argue the the misuse comes from a misunderstanding. So I don't know. Is, Is there, have we all been wrong? Well, we're going to take the next 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, ever how long it takes to work through this article that seems to imply, hey guys, we've all gotten Romans 8, 28 wrong. So are you ready? Are you ready to investigate? Let's put our thinking caps on. Now, again, I want to find that that happy medium. I'm more than willing to hear someone say, hey, here's this new interpretation. Now, I'm hoping they're basing it on something in the early church. I'm hoping that they can base it and say, hey, the early church didn't understand it this way. So then it's not really a new interpretation. I feel like I've got something to go with. And hopefully that can provide some textual, linguistic uh, arguments for their their perspective. But I'm always willing to listen. I'm always willing to listen because I don't want to just like, well, no one else understands it that way. So let's just ignore it. But I want to find that happy balance here, but I'm, I'm willing to listen. So are you willing to listen and at least consider the possibility that we've all gotten Romans 8.28 wrong. Are, are you ready to consider that? All right. Here's the headline. Again, this was published five days ago. N.T. Wright says Christians have misunderstood Romans 8.28. Now, maybe you know who N.T. Wright is. Maybe you don't. They're going to offer a little bit of biographical information about N.T. Wright. You may agree with him. You may strongly disagree with N.T. Wright. I strongly disagree with him on many issues. But hey, I'm still willing to listen to how we possibly have misunderstood Romans 8.28. So that's the major headline. N.T. Wright says Christians have misunderstood Romans 8.28. Then right underneath that, they have a little kind of like a, I guess a summary line. The difference a preposition can make. 
the difference a preposition can make. So they are arguing that maybe the entire verse has been misunderstood because of a preposition. Because of a preposition. Now, now, is it possible that we've all gotten the preposition wrong? Is it possible? Is, is, it, is it possible? I'm going to do this really, really quick. Hang on. I'm going to do something here. All right. A preposition is a word governing and usually preceding a noun or pronoun and exp- expressing a relation to another word or element in the clause. All right. So let me read that again. A preposition is a word governing and usually preceding a noun or pronoun and expressing a relation to another word or element in the clause, as in the man on the platform, uh, she arrived after dinner. What did you do it for? Those are some examples, right? So um, as in, so, uh, so let me read this all again. A preposition is a word governing and usually preceding a noun or pronoun and expressing a relation to another word or element in the clause, as in, quote, the man on the platform, quote, she arrived after dinner, quote, what did you do it for? All right. Using a preposition at the end of a sentence in everyday speech is common. All right. So so we're going to have to go maybe... Back to school here, right? We're going to have to consider some of this and see. that. So is, is the problem in Romans 8.28 is because maybe we don't know our prepositions or we've been using the wrong preposition or we don't know how to read or like, is that the problem? I, I don't know. I don't know. Let's at least... Let's at least look into this, all right? We could talk a lot about prepositions, but here we go. I quote, N.T. Wright is the most famous an influential theologian alive today. Now that's a that's a big statement. I don't know if he's I don't think he's the most famous and I don't know if he's the most influential. I don't know. I, I don't know if I agree with either. I he's well known. He's definitely been influential, but when you put the word most there, you're making a very dogmatic assertion. Based off what standard are you saying he's the most famous and most influential? Famous would be he's the most well known. Now, it's Saturdays. Tomorrow at church, walk around your church and ask how many people who N.T. Wright is. I have a feeling most people won't have a clue, but I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. All right. But, um, all right, here we go. All right. All of a sudden, my my iPad decided to check. I almost got scared. I'm like, wait a minute. The article just disappeared. I'm like, I, I'm never going to find this again. All right, here we go. So N.T. Wright is the most famous and influential theologian alive today. The 74-year-old Anglican priest and Oxford research fellow has authored 90 books, contributed hundreds of articles to both Christian and secular publications, and appeared on countless podcasts. Now, let's be fair. That's a lot of books. 90 books is a lot of books. I'm going to be honest with you here. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think I've ever read an an entire N.T. Wright book. I don't think I have. I know I've read some rebuttals of some of his books. I maybe have read one of his books. Maybe. Have you ever read an N.T. Wright book? Have you ever seen an N.T. Wright book? How many times have N.T. Wright books been talked about in your church? I don't know. Again, most famous and influential. That is, 
to me, okay, this is what I see just from, I'm just looking at this somewhat jaded, somewhat as a critic. To me, this is almost, how can I say, this is where you, you believe what he says. So to make his argument appear stronger, he believes we've all got Romans 8.28 wrong. So the person writing this article obviously agrees with N.T. Wright. This is what I'm feeling. I, we'll, we'll work through this, but this is what I think I see. This, this to me is a way of psychologically making it sound like, see, N.T. Wright is the most famous. He is the most influential. So if he says we got Romans 8.28 wrong, well, then obviously we possibly got it wrong because this man is an Oxford research fellow and has authored 90 books, contributed hundreds of articles to both Christian and secular publications and appeared on countless podcasts. This is to me where he's kind of setting up. I mean, who are you to argue with that? Who are you to argue with that? To me, this is almost kind of setting up a... Uh, a bias where it's it's almost he's making the author of this article is almost making an argument because N.T. Wright has done all of these things. Who are, who are you or I to argue with him? So I, I'm not a big fan of that because, again, he's making dogmatic assertions without any proof. Now, you can dogmatically claim he's 74 years old. You can dogmatically assert he's an Anglican priest. You can dogmatically assert he's an Oxford research fellow. You can dogmatically assert he's authored 90 books and contributed hundreds of articles and appeared on countless podcasts. All of those are dogmatic assertions. Those are factual statements. Now, the question is, does that ensure that his interpretation of Romans 8.28 is correct? Now, this is the weird world of, of, not, of non-Catholicism, of the Protestant world. Because in the Protestant world, someone who has all of those credentials are, according to the way it works in the Protestant world, has no more authority, has no more power, has no more ability to interpret than the person sitting in the pew who works in construction. Because the person sitting in the pew who works in construction is supposed to be the one who can look and go, nope, what is being preached is true or false. And and we've talked about all of that weird thing. Because, because you got to be careful if you're saying, well, if a person has more study and has done more of this, then their interpretation is has a greater chance of being right without, without, if you're not careful, you almost create kind of a magisterial authority. See, the more, if you've got more degrees and you've written more books, then your interpretation has greater power than those of those who don't. That's kind of a fundamentally against the whole Protestant notion that the average Christian has the power and right to interpret. And we can look into all of those problems, but let's, let's continue and what, happens here. His most recent book, Into the Heart of Romans, argues that Christians have grossly misunderstood one of their favorite Bible verses. Wright goes so far as to call Romans 8.28 the Bible's most misunderstood verse. So according to N.T. Wright, the most misunderstood verse in the entire Bible is Romans 8.28. And according to the little tagline, it's all because of a preposition. It's all because of a preposition. We've all gotten the preposition wrong. And if we got the preposition right, then we would understand the verse. But because we got the preposition wrong, then it's the most misunderstood verse. All right, here we go. What, now this is the article continues. What do Christians get so wrong about Romans 8.28? What do you think we get so wrong? What do you think? 
What do you think we get so wrong about Romans 8.28? Now, I, I tend to think that what we get wrong is a lot of times we quote it and we know all things work together for good. And the idea that it, it's good according to our idea of good according to what we want. So someone is suffering. We're like, hey, all things work together for good. And we almost put it like, hey, something great's going to come out of this horrible situation. Like, like, and almost, it almost diminishes the suffering someone is going through. I can remember when my mother died as, as a young person and people going, all things work together for good. Oh, really? So I'm going to get my mother back? Yeah, thank you. Things are going to work out great that, that, that me and my mother, my mother died with a completely broken relationship. I wasn't even living at home and we're never going to be able to reconcile, never going to get an apology. Nothing ever is going to, but thank you for telling me all things work together for good. I really appreciate you showing up at the funeral telling me that all things are going to work together for good. Hey, why don't you shut up and get out of my face? Yeah, that's basically how I felt. And those people never come back to go, see, I told you all things were going to work together for good. I told you. Well, things didn't really work out so together for good because with less than a year where I I was sitting in a church looking at my mother's casket, less than a year later, that same church standing where my mother's casket was, was my father marrying another woman who then came into our family, brought in all of her children from previous marriages. And then, well, that was the end of my relationship with my father. So things didn't get better. And then we could look at all the negative things that erupted out of that mess. No, 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 no. All things didn't work together for good. So maybe sometimes we understand good. Maybe our, our, our problem is we understand good the wrong way. Also, another problem I think we have, we tend to do, and we all know things work together for good to them that love God, is we tend to forget that part. There seems to be, it works together for good for those who love God. Because I think if you love God, then whatever God does, we then will see as good because we love him. And, and that, then he, then the good is what he does, whether we like it or not. I, I think there's a lot that we could go with that. Um, to them who are called according to his purpose. So I think there's a lot that we misunderstood. But is it because of a, of a preposition? I don't know. Let's see what they, where, where they do here. All right, here we go. So what do Christians get wrong about Romans 8.28? This is what they say. One word, a preposition. Problems with the subject. Depending on the translation, there may also be problems with the subject in Romans 8.28. So he says what we get wrong is a preposition, but we also have problems with the subject. Wright focuses on the King James Version, which is what I read, of Romans 8.28, since it was the dominant translation for so long and the basis for more recent versions. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to the purpose. The King James makes all things appear to be the subject or actor in the sentence, all things work together, implies that events and circumstances in the world have some kind of mysterious almost karmic engine, things work out on their own apart from God. Now, I don't know if I've ever witnessed that interpretation in the church. Have you ever witnessed the idea that all things work together apart from God? That they just kind of, some kind of mysterious karma is at work and just all things tend to just work out good apart from God? I don't think I've ever heard that. So he focuses on the King James, he says, all things work together. And so according to them, this, the, this appears that all things appears to be the subject 
And that all things work together implies that events and circumstances in the world have some kind of mysterious karmic energy or engine and things work out on their own apart from God. I've never heard that. I've always understood all things work together for good because God is the one who's, who's driving it. I've never understood that it was all things work together for good apart from God. It was just kind of built into the universe. This, this, that no matter what bad things happen, it ultimately works for good. I've never understood it that way. I don't think I've ever met a Christian who've understood it that way. But according to this, he, he, he says the King James seems to imply that. I, maybe that's my own poor reading. Maybe I never looked, oh, all things is the subject and therefore all things work together by itself. I, I, I don't know. They go on to say, at first glance, this may seem like an encouraging, hopeful interpretation. Every cloud has a silver lining. But Wright points out that this interpretation removes God from the equation, precisely the opposite of what Paul meant for readers to understand. I don't think any reader, I would like to find, has, well, I can ask you, in all your years of being a Christian, have you ever heard someone preach that all things work together for good apart from God? It's just on its own. And that all things is the engine all things is the subject and that God is not, is passive in this. I, I don't think I've ever heard that. If you've heard that, please let me know. And if it was your church, I, mean, I won't, I won't give their name, but I would love to hear the sermon where your pastor said that I don't, I just, I don't believe that that's just weird that that's where they're starting. I, I don't think anybody's done that. All right, but let's continue. Now it says, so there's supposedly problems with the subject. I don't think there's a problem with the subject personally. So I, that's almost like creating a straw man. Hey, the King James puts all things as the subject. And so Christians have gotten it wrong. I don't believe that's true. All right. That's my own. I, I can't scientific. Well, I guess I could scientifically prove it. Pull up every sermon I could find on Romans 8.28. We spend the next year next year reviewing sermons on Romans 8.28 and see if we can find one. I don't know if you or I want to spend a year doing that, but I, I would need like, I mean, he could have said, I looked up a hundred random sermons and found that 75 of them make all things the subject. I don't think you would find that... I, I think out of a hundred random sermons, I don't think you would find one. But let's now move on to what he says. The second problem is a problem with the preposition. Virtually every translation suffers from the same problem with a preposition. For instance, the NIV of Romans 8.28 says, and I quote, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, the NIV places God as the subject or actor. God works for the good, not the vague things of life or circumstances. The NIV restores God to the equation of Romans 8.28. Okay, so he says the NIV gets it right by at least putting God as the subject, all right? And we know that in all things, God works for the good. It's not just all things working for good by themselves, God. So he says the NIV at least fixes the subject problem, okay? But supposedly there's still a problem. But the NIV still messes up. So according to N.T. Wright, the King James is wrong. The NIV is wrong. Now, I got to stop right here. I got to stop right here. Because I'm getting flashbacks. Getting flashbacks to my Genesis class. 
at Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. I'll never forget this. We're in class and the professor just constantly is like, that's mistranslated, that's mistranslated, that's wrong, that's mistranslated, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And I remember one of the young students basically going, so what am I supposed to do? Like, I, you know, he was like a youth director or I think he was already preaching. I don't know. He's like, what am I supposed to do? Because you're basically telling me that all the translations are wrong. And basically the professor was like, well, until you can read the manuscripts, you probably shouldn't be preaching. And I was like, so no English translation is correct. My only way I can preach or teach is I have to be able to know the manuscripts and be able to look at the manuscripts and compare manuscript with manuscript to manuscript to manuscript and then determine which manuscript is the right reading because all English translations are wrong. That kind of thinking then creates, look, this drives me crazy. That's, I mean, obviously that's not a Catholic university that I was attending. Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska was a Protestant school. If I wanted to go to a Catholic university, I'd have been going to Creighton. But so I was going to a Protestant university and inevitably, guess what they were creating? The very argument for a magisterium. The only people who can teach and the only people who can correctly understand are people who can read Hebrew and Greek so proficiently that they can look at multiple manuscripts and determine which reading is correct. Well, then guess what? No one can interpret the text until they can do that. You create a magisterium. That's a, that's an argument for a magisterial authority. Well, here he's doing the same thing. The King James gets it wrong. The NIV gets it wrong. Who gets it right? N.T. Wright. He's the magisterial authority that we've all needed. See, it's still making an argument for he has the authority and nobody else does. So, but what, what does the NIV get wrong? Okay, according to him, the uh, NIV still messes up. Here's what he says, and I'm quoting, according to Wright, and I quote, the verb Paul used doesn't mean work to, as in the King James, it means work with. All right, so let me read this again. So the NIV says, let me go back to the NIV. The NIV says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. The King James says, we know all things work together for good. So work together works for, according to him, the verb Paul used doesn't mean works to, as in the King James, it means work with. Right argues that the translations works for good to them causes Christians to completely miss Paul's actual meaning and the implications for their faith. So it shouldn't say, it should not say, according to him, works for good to them, that that's wrong, that misses the whole thing. If God works for good to those who love him, then we don't have to do anything to bring about good things. We can sit on our hands, seen but not heard. We can wait for all things, karma or God, to take care of our lives and the troubles of the world. So according to him, it makes us too passive. He thinks the problem with our interpretation is that if we say all things work together for good, or if God is working together for our good, that this makes us passive and that God does the work and we just sit back and we passively receive it and we don't have to do anything to bring about this good. And N.T. Wright is like, that is incorrect. That is not true. 
Okay. Where is this going to go? Now, this is interesting. You got your thinking caps on? According to this, what Paul is actually doing in Romans 8.28 is he's calling Christians to a vocation. He says that this idea that God's going to work all things together for good, if we get God as the right subject, God is the one doing the work, and he's working all things together for good for us, that this makes us too passive and we're not doing anything to work work out the good. And he says that Paul, N.T. Wright says, Paul is actually calling Christians to vocations in Romans 8, 28. And then this goes on to say, such an interpretation of God doing it all, such an interpretation and attitude demolishes Paul's real meaning, the call to Christian vocation. He says the real meaning of this is that Paul is calling us to vocation. That what Paul is actually doing is that we work to bring about the good. That this is something we are to do. So are we the engine or is God the engine? Well, he seemed to imply that God is the engine. So is this means we work together with God to bring good. God does his part. We do our part. This is we work together with God in vocation to bring about the good. That, that's seemingly the direction N.T. Wright is going. Now he's going to make his argument. If God works for good with those who love him, then we have a responsibility to cooperate with God's will and love. Our actions, our choices matter to God because they help bring about his will on earth as well as in heaven. God needs creaturely cooperation to stop evil and alleviate suffering. Now, I've got some major problems here. I got some major God needs creaturely cooperation God needs that? So you're telling me God looks down like, this place is a mess. This world is an absolute garbage heap. I need some people to cooperate with me to work all of this evil into good. To alleviate suffering and to stop evil, I need people to work with me. Now, first of all, that seems to destroy God's omnipotence and you make him him dependent upon us. The reason the world is a mess is not, I guess this gets God's off the, God off the hook a little bit, right? The reason the world is a mess is not because God lacks the power or the will. It's because for God, God has set it up that we must cooperate with him to alleviate the, the evil and the suffering. That the whole point of Romans 8.28, so what I guess N.T. Wright is saying, the way we should interpret Romans 8.28 is that all things work together for good when we work with God. We have to work with God, we have to love God, and we have to be called according to his purpose. It seems that this would be a conditional. There are three conditions that must be met. This seemingly the direct, now I don't know if he's going to break it all down, but this seems to be the direction he's going. All things can work together for good if, if, if we work with God, love God, and are called according to his purpose. And that this is a, this is a call to vocation. This seems to be the argument N.T. Wright is making. Here we go. Let's, let's continue reading this. As Wright points out, 
Most Christians regard Romans 8 as an explanation for how Christian salvation works. And the idea of human effort contributing to eternal salvation sends shivers down some theological spines. But the passage of Romans 8.28 is not about salvation. All right. So he's going to make another argument. Some would say all things work together for good, but this is reference to salvation. He's like, it's not about salvation. Let's go back to Romans 8. And let's see if we can figure out exactly what is being referred to here. All right. Romans 8. All right. So we go to verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Hey, we're suffering, but there's going to come a time that there's going to be a glory revealed in us that's far greater than the sufferings we're currently enduring. Now, that seems to be referencing to our glorification. Hey, suffering now, but ultimately glory then, meaning all things ultimately will work for the greater good, our glorification. We may be suffering now. Does that work? I don't know. Let's go to verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation for the sons of God. We have this expectation now, but it's going to wait until ultimately to the manifestation of the sons of God. Is that not glorification? I don't know. Verse 20, for the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who have subject the same also in hope. We have been subject to vanity. God did that. But he also uh, have subject the same in hope. Those of us who've been subjected to vanity, to the sufferings of this world, have been also subjected to hope. But it's a hope that doesn't derive from us, but derives from God's sovereignty and electing us, choosing us, saving us, and ultimately will glorify us. Meaning all things would work together for good, right? Because the creature also... Because, because the creature itself also should be delivered from the bondage of corruption and to the glorious liberty of the children of God. Because ultimately, the suffering will be turned into glory. What? Because God will do the work. God will do what he subjected it to vanity. There is suffering now. But ultimately, God will redeem. He will glorify. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. All things will work ultimately to good. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together into now. Everything, everything is suffering now because it's subject to the curse of the fall. Verse 23, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan with ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. We are groaning now, but we're still, we are waiting. We have a hope that will not disappoint. And what is that hope? The redemption, even of our body. This fleshly body, this corrupted body, this weak body that gets sick, that suffers, that dies. But we have a hope that's eternal, that God will redeem. There will be a glorification. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? We have a hope and we can't yet see it. Remember, we talked about this a couple of days ago about faith and hope. Faith has the ability to grab onto what we cannot see. And then that gives us a chance to hope, but it's a confident hope, a hope that will not disappoint. What is that hope ultimately in? Not in my present circumstances changing, but in the eternal reality 
that all the present suffering will give away to a greater glory and that all things will work together for good. But God would be the one doing this, not with my cooperation. Everything here is about what God will do, has nothing to do with me. Let's continue to, to, uh, to read verse 24, for we are saved by hope, but a hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth. Why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for, uh, for that, we see not, then do we like patience wait for it? We hope in what we cannot see by faith, because faith is the evidence of what we cannot see. Faith grabs onto it. We can't see it yet, but we patiently wait for it. What are we waiting for? That all things will work together for good. All God will work all things for good. This is the eternal good. This is glorification, a new heaven, a new earth, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death. That's the good. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now, while we, while in the midst of suffering, the spirit makes intercession for us. Is that good to know? I'm glad to know that when I'm suffering and I don't even know what to say and all I can do is groan, all I can do is throw out a, a spiritual scream of lament. The spirit is interceding for me and can pray a prayer much better than I can because well, all things are going to work together for good. That what glorification verse 27 and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is in the mind of the spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, we know, what do we know? We know all things work together for the good to them that love God, to those who are called according to a pur purpose. All things are going to work together for good. That working together for good is God going to work all things together for good, which is ultimately our glorification. I think this has everything to do with ultimately salvation and eternal glorification. He's saying, no, 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 no. This has everything to do with the here and now. And I'm supposed to work with God to bring all things together for good now. If I cooperate with God, if I love God and I'm called according to his purpose. I'm sorry, I completely disagree with N.T. Wright. Just on the context of the scripture itself. Now, I'm willing to take any any new interpretation as a hypothesis and work through it. But I just work, I just took you verse by verse through the context. Let me read this again. All right, here we go. As Wright points out, most Christians regard Romans 8 as an explanation of how Christian salvation works and the idea of human effort contributing to eternal salvation sends shivers down some theological spines. But the passage of Romans 8.28 is not about salvation, according to N.T. Wright. It's about vocation. Wright eloquently explains, and I quote, those who have been grasped by the gospel of Jesus, though those in whose heart the Holy Spirit has been at work, now have a specific role, a task within God's ongoing purposes. So he's like, hey, now that you're saved, you have a, you have a work, you have a task within God's ongoing purpose. And your task, your vocation now is to work with God to bring all things together for good. This, this, this destroys the whole context leading up to 828. Now, listen what they do here. This interpretation 
fits the overall narrative and theology of the Bible. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not how you do hermeneutics. You don't look and see if this interpretation fits the overall narrative of the Bible. The first thing you have to do is see if this interp- interpretation fits the immediate context in which Romans 8.28 is found. It says, God appointed humans in the Garden of Eden to co-rule creation with him. Paul refers to the Genesis creation story throughout Romans, and the eighth chapter explores how co-ruling creation may work in practice. So he's like, hey, he's good. He borrows from Genesis and says that what he's doing here is he's looking at how we co-rule with God, how co-ruling creation may work with practice, that we co-rule somehow with God in creation to bring about good. That's not what Romans 8.28 is saying. Romans 8.28 is saying is there is immense suffering now, but we are waiting for a time where it's going to be, the suffering's going to give away to glory. Well, where are you going to look to? To the time that we work out glory on this earth? Well, I'm sorry, that's the most foolish thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm looking for the time where greater glory is glorification, the redemption of all things, a new heaven and a new earth. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death. Now, here we go. This is, this is the dramatic conclusion of this article. What is the Christian vocation in Romans 8? To encourage his readers, Christians facing persecution and wondering why Jesus doesn't hurry up and come back already, Paul compares the straight state of creation to a woman in labor and talks about offering prayers of lament amidst the painful, in-progress, spiritual shaping of creation. Well, he does talk about offering prayers, but it's the Holy Spirit offering the prayer. And we are suffering now. But our hope is not in us working with God to make it better. Our hope is that God will make it better. That God will fix it. But not when we may decide, but ultimately in glorification. When we lament, Paul says, God hears us. Then God conforms us into the pattern of Jesus Christ and to the kind of people who get their hands dirty, cleaning up the mess of the world who suffer with those who suffer in order to redeem that which needs redeeming. Well, wait a minute. First of all, it says... The spirit will pre- will will speak for us. And then it goes on to say, Paul encourages the persecuted Christians reading Romans to endure suffering with hope in God's purpose and steadfast commitment to working with God to help turn creation into God's kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is not what Romans 8 to 28 is saying. He's not saying you need to work with God. He's saying you hold on to hope. You know that the time is coming that the, pres- the suffering will give away to a greater glory. He doesn't say, hey, no, 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 no. Here's what you're going to do. I know you're suffering, but guys, 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 work with God. Fix everything and you'll turn creation into God's kingdom. If your hope is to work with God in the present, to turn this into God's kingdom, you're out of your ever living mind. Because you'll never turn creation into God's kingdom because as long as we dwell on this earth, the sinful nature resides in you and me. And that's why the church is messed up. The world is messed up. Non-Christian homes are messed up. Christian homes are messed up. Non-Christian families are messed up. Christian families are messed up because we are all sinners and we all are, no matter how hard we try, we fall short, we fall short, we fall short. The next verse, Romans 8, 29, explicitly says that God conforms his people into the mold of Jesus Christ. Let's look at Romans 8, 29. For whom he did foreknow, 
He also did predestinate, could be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Well, guess what? He foreknew them. He predestinated them to be conformed to the image. When will I be truly conformed to his image? When? In glorification. This all points to God's ultimately, that's, that's the working out all things together for good. The ultimate end will me be being conformed to the image of his son. I'm never going to be conformed to the image of his son on this earth. And if you think you are, you're out of your ever living mind. Because you still have a sinful nature. The, the verse seems to say that God foreknew the Christians to whom Paul writes in Romans. Therefore, God predestined that they would be conformed to Christ in the midst of their suffering so that they would co-work with God in redeeming the world. It does not say that he, they're going to co-work. It says that God's going to do all of this. And, and then he, he goes on to quote um, and, and from N.T. Wright, and they will thereby be cooperating, not indeed in the work of their own salvation, but in the larger purpose of God for his battered and bleeding creation. What do you think about this interpretation of Romans 8, 28? I think it's trash is what I think. <laughs> That's what I think. Now, that article is written by Eric Sintel, S-E-N-T-E-L-L. Eric Sintel, um, this is, I, I found it Medium. I, I subscribe to Medium. Um, I think it's, it's medium.com, I think. I have the app. And uh, it's N.T. Wright says Christians have misunderstood Romans 8, 28. I believe that interpretation is fraudulent. I believe it's wrong. I've given you my interpretation. I've spent 45 minutes trying to articulate the context in order to justify my interpretation. Well, you'll notice nowhere in that article do they even try to handle the verses that come before Romans 8.28. Try to claim that we've gotten the subject wrong and the preposition wrong. And doesn't even try to bother to look at the actual context of what comes before it. I place before you and your capable hands, Romans 8.28 today. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this supposed correct interpretation of Romans 8.28. As they claim, N.T. Wright is claiming that we've all misunderstood it. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me, news if at yahoo.com. That's news, if at yahoo.com. News, if at yahoo.com. That's news, if at yahoo.com. I'd like to offer you some profound words of wisdom here. But what I will tell you is as long as human beings are on this earth, there will be new interpretations. I welcome that, but every new interpretation I feel should be viewed as a hypothesis, and then we should test that hypothesis with careful, careful examination of the text itself. I believe a careful examination of the text does not lead to supporting the hypotheses that we just read. You can tell me how you interpret Romans 8, 28 in light of the context that comes before it as we verse by verse worked through quickly. And I put forth my, I'll, I will claim that my interpretation is a hypothesis and you can test and see what you think. I appreciate you listening. Hope you're having a great Saturday. Hopefully you'll have a wonderful Lord's Day tomorrow. And uh, well, I don't know if I'll do any more broadcasting today, but if I do, 
well, hopefully you'll be listening. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.